Carrie Robinson was sentenced to 20 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. This type of statement isn't surprising for many. We've heard far too many stories about innocent people's lives being stolen from them because of false convictions. About an hour north of the Florida border is Moultrie, Georgia. That's a typical South Georgia town centered around an old courthouse surrounded by farmlands that harvest crops like strawberries, tomatoes, cotton, and peanuts. It's farmland and uh, factories such as meat plants, beef plant, chicken plant, stuff like that. Carrie Robinson grew up here. I'm the baby of the family, so I was loved by everyone, from mom, sisters and brothers, aunt, cousins. My oldest brother was named Jerome, after him. Sister named Stephanie, then Miranda. Then the one she adopted, her name was Eva, and then James, then me. He remembers a pretty typical childhood in the 80s. I played softball, football, basketball, swim. I just had a perfect childhood. I had a lot of shoes, a lot of hats that I would place around the room. I was a video game head at once upon a time. I collected baseball cards. They was everywhere. But during his sophomore year in high school, everything changed. This is The 4%, a podcast about one man's story of wrongful conviction, the factors that led to it, and the people who fought to free him. My name is Elle Duncan, and I grew up in Atlanta, just a few hours north of Moultrie. And I wanted to tell this story because, frankly, it terrifies me. Carrie Robinson could be my son or my father. Black and brown people are convicted and jailed at higher rates than their white counterparts and are more likely to be wrongfully convicted of crimes. Maybe equally as terrifying is the fact that many wrongful convictions are the result of invalid forensic evidence. This is Carrie's story. I am innocent, and it will be proven that I'm innocent. Carrie Robinson sits in jail, convicted of a rape he claims he didn't do, and the Innocence Project which has helped overturn wrongful convictions by using DNA, believes he may be telling the truth. On February 15, 1993, in Moultrie, Georgia, three young men broke into the home of a 42-year-old woman and raped her at gunpoint. DNA was collected. It was a mixture of the attackers and the victim. The rape survivor identified two individuals from a local yearbook, She immediately selected a young man named Tyrone White as the ringleader. She also identified a friend of Tyrone White's who was later cleared by law enforcement after Tyrone denied his involvement. But then, after a couple of failed attempts to recall his name, Tyrone accused Carrie of being involved in the rape. I just feel like the guy was trying to get out of what he was into. For no apparent reason, I just became a suspect. It's important to point out the rape survivor never identified Carrie as one of the perpetrators. This was the beginning of what would become one of the factors that led to Carrie's wrongful conviction. Incentivized testimony. 
This is when someone testifies on behalf of the state against another person in exchange for an expected benefit. Maybe they've been promised cash or something like reduced charges, leniency, or even immunity from prosecution. Tyrone knew that if he gave the police a name and cooperated, he could make a deal and receive a significantly reduced sentence. And he did. At this point in Carrie's story, the only evidence that police had against him was Tyrone's claim. For context, in the state of Georgia, you need at least one more piece of evidence than the claims of a co-defendant. The state hadn't investigated the sexual assault kit for DNA, so Carrie was released on bond and went back to his life knowing he was innocent and that the evidence would show the same. I still was in school. Even though I was going through this, I always stayed in school. I've never been a dropout type of person. I never skipped school and always had good grades. Days turned into weeks, weeks into months, months into years, and Carrie kept living his life. In 1999, six years after the crime, police collected a blood sample from Carrie to test his DNA against the DNA collected from the sexual assault kit. It came back inconclusive, and life went on again. Carrie began working as a builder, stayed in Moultrie, close to family and friends, and the world kept turning. Three more years went by. Carrie settled into life. He became a dad. He had a boy and a girl. You know, at one point, it's like it never happened. After so many years, you know, it never happened. After my kids were born in 2000, I really, really forgot about it. And then in 2002, the nightmare began all over again. No phone call, no one knocking at the door, just a summons with a court date that showed up unannounced in the mailbox. And I'm like, really, I'm just getting my life in it, you know, get my life back the way that I want it. I have brand new kids in the world. My focus are on them. When I first got the letter about a court date, of course, emotions came back. Carrie knew he was innocent and believed that once a jury heard the truth, they would agree. He got a lawyer and tried to stay positive, and he did this with his family's support. You know, love is stronger than anything, so I was good. Carrie and his lawyer knew the accusations were weak. You'll remember the sexual assault survivor never identified Carrie as even being involved, coupled with the fact that police and prosecutors had already caught Tyrone White telling several other lies and the DNA test results clearly linked Tyrone White to the crime. I had on a suit, I think a navy blue suit, and the courtroom's like, I had my... My mom, my daughter mom, my sister, she was there. All of them sat behind me. The victim had her people supporting her. It was mainly just like a back-in-the-day movie or something. In a situation where you know you're going to get found guilty or a situation where you know you're going to get hurt, that type of thing. And the judge was older white guy, wore glasses. District attorney was a white guy. My lawyer was a white guy. 
the other guys lawyer they was white guys so the jury was 90% white it just, it just it was terrible looking around the courtroom Carrie's hope for justice was quickly deflated the prosecutor advocated for Tyrone's version of the story, even though it directly conflicted with the sexual assault survivor's testimony. And those inconclusive DNA results? The laboratory analyst for the state crime lab twisted and overstated the DNA evidence, inaccurately testifying that there was a very, very low likelihood that it was anyone other than Carrie Robinson. It crushed me, though. It really crushed me. After the conviction and being sent to prison, Carrie began the appeals process with the same lawyer he had at trial representing him. Even though there were numerous issues with Carrie's case, the appeal was denied and his conviction upheld. Carrie wanted to find a new lawyer. He wrote a lot of letters and eventually learned through a fellow inmate about Rodney Zell. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I practiced law there for approximately 25 years. I wrote Rodney maybe a two, two and a half page letter. I just broke it down about my whole situation, my whole case. I think the first letter I wrote him was in 2004 when he had first written me and I wrote him back. Rodney's practice specifically focused on incarcerated individuals. When I began representing prisoners exclusively, I moved down to the coast of Georgia where the weather was better, the traffic was better, and there were more prisons, so I was closer to my clients. Rodney Zell was shocked when he learned that Tyrone White's testimony had played such a central role in Carrie's trial. There was no evidence. I mean, there was no evidence. The sole evidence was a, an admitted liar, an admitted rapist, a guy who even through the trial, lied during the trial. Rodney Zell agreed to represent Carrie free of charge. That's something many attorneys do, work pro bono on a certain percentage of cases. Because DNA was so central to this case, Rodney reached out to a known and respected expert in the field, Dr. Greg Hempikian. Rodney said, yeah, there was DNA. We, You know, at Starbucks, he tells me, and... He shows me a couple of the letters from the GBI, the reports, and he says, but I think this guy's innocent. And uh, I said, well, you know, that's, this is going to be a challenge. And, and, uh, and I didn't know at that point if it was a paid case or not a paid case. And uh, uh, so I just looked at Rodney. I said, Rodney, are you working for free? He says, I am now. And I said, all right, well, then I'll work for free too. And um, let, let's finish this. You know, let's, fi let's find out the truth. In prison, Carrie passed the time researching his case while trying to stay active. Every day is routine. Some guys don't do anything. You know, they'll stay back, stay in the dorm, play cars and dominoes and just, you know, waste their time or whatever. That's terrible for that person, but, you know, each his own. But uh, 9 o'clock, you, you have a choice to go in the yard or not. After 12 o'clock, you go to lunch. After lunch, you back in the dorm. People that have noon classes, they go to classes all over again. What happened in the morning, it happened after noon. 
So I say around 4 o'clock, 4.30, that's when everything stops and you get ready for dinner. After dinner, you're in the dorm for the rest of the day. I play everything year-round from basketball, football, and softball. I mainly play year-round in prison to keep, you know, stay focused. I work down a lot. Carrie didn't want to give in to despair or lose hope. But the truth is, the odds were against him. In the United States, it's estimated that 4% of incarcerated people in prisons are innocent. In Georgia alone, where Carrie and I grew up, that's an estimated 2,000 people. Carrie kept fighting. His next option was to pursue what's called habeas corpus. We'll unpack this complicated process in episode two, but simply put, Habeas corpus is when you sue the warden of a prison because it is unlawful for the state to keep you there. For example, if prosecutors had violated constitutional rights to convict an innocent person. I did a lot of reading. A lot of days I just pull out all my paperwork from my case. Letters from Rodney Zell. I go back and highlight my transcript. I do all kinds of things. Meanwhile, Rodney Zell was working on Carrie's habeas corpus, and Dr. Hampikian was finding a way to disprove the DNA analyst's testimony presented during Carrie's trial. This was complicated because the biological DNA sample itself was complicated. It was a complex mixture of DNA from at least three people. The mixture clearly contained complete DNA profiles from the rape survivor and from Tyrone White. But there were four partial genetic markers left over in the mix that weren't from either the survivor or Tyrone. Those four pieces of DNA could have come from one person or up to four people or simply be from contamination. The question was, Whose DNA was left? It takes very complex math to try to figure this out. Here's Dr. Hempikian. So a mixture, the way that I explain a mixture is that if, if we took the letters from your name and my name and put them Scrabble tiles into a bowl, two people contributed letters or two people contributed DNA to a stain, if you will. But you can pull out thousands of names from those letters. So there are thousands of people who would not be excluded as possible contributors to the mixture. And juries would hear that a suspect could not be excluded from a mixture. And it was a match. People would call it a match. And uh, at the time Carrie's case went to trial, you didn't even have to give a number of how many other people might match. Attorney Rodney Zell was volunteering on this case. Then he had reached out to and got connected with and worked with Dr. Hampikian over the years and eventually reached out to Georgia Innocence Project. So GIP came on and started working as co-counsel in the case. Meet Claire Gilbert. She's the former executive director of the Georgia Innocence Project, or GIP for short. I'm an attorney. I'm licensed in Georgia and Washington State. I used to be a public defender. I was a whistleblower lawyer and advocate for a while. And I also worked as a victim advocate between 
college and law school. Across the nation, there are people working tirelessly to advocate for the wrongfully convicted. The Georgia Innocence Project was founded in 2002. Most of GIP's cases, the organization would take on after someone writes to GIP from prison saying that they're innocent, and GIP would begin investigating that and working it up to see whether the person was wrongfully convicted or not. Anytime a criminal defense lawyer or a scientist reaches out and says, we've already done all this work and we think this person is innocent and we need your help and your expertise in helping to prove that to the court, GIP would jump on those cases. The Georgia Innocence Project is an independent resource for a system that has a serious problem with mass incarceration. When you have a system that is so bound and determined to deem so much a crime, afford so little resources and time to fully investigating these allegations and these charges and just really churning people through the system, there is not the time and the energy and the resources to fully investigate and look at these cases and make a reasoned decision. Georgia is one of the most carceral states in the country. And the United States is one of the most carceral countries in the world, one of the top few. And in Georgia, there are more people under correctional control than almost any other state in the nation. And most of those people are black and brown people. Typically, wrongful convictions are the result of a handful of common factors. The known wrongful conviction factors. So they include uh, unreliable eyewitness identifications, overstated and flawed forensic evidence, incentivized witnesses and incentivized testimony, false confessions, and then you've got prosecutorial misconduct which is a huge wrongful conviction factor. It's probably the most common one that the Georgia Innocence Project sees in these cases. Carrie's case wasn't out of the ordinary when you compare it to other wrongful convictions. Remember how incentivized testimony played a role in Carrie's wrongful conviction? And this was the testimony of a a young man who was also a co-defendant in the case, a man by the name of Tyrone White. Tyrone White was identified immediately by the survivor of the sexual assault. Shortly after the assault occurred, she looked through 14 pages of yearbook photos and very quickly identified Tyrone White as the main perpetrator and the ringleader in the assault. And then she also identified another person that was not Carrie Robinson. At no point was Carrie Robinson ever identified by the survivor of the assault as being involved. He turned out to be a very unreliable witness throughout the entire process, yet the prosecutors decided, despite that, they would rely upon his testimony to implicate someone else, even though his testimony was inconsistent with that 
of the survivor of this sexual assault. And why prosecutors do that, why that was done in this particular case, it's difficult to understand, but we see it again and again. Just as DNA evidence can be used to prove someone's guilt, it can also be used to prove someone's innocence. There have been nearly 4,000 exonerations since 1989. Out of those, close to 600 involve DNA. In Carey's trial, the state's DNA analyst played a critical role in the jury finding him guilty. The only other evidence implicating Carey is that of a scientific expert. Everybody wants to believe the scientific expert. At first, the analyst found the DNA mixture too complicated to determine, and their conclusions fluctuated. I can't do the math on this. I can't give you the answer to this. That, that was the accurate testimony. But then he stretched it and he went further and he gave his testimony changed. The analyst working for the Georgia Bureau of Investigations then said there was a very, very low likelihood that similarities between the DNA mixture and Carrie Robinson's DNA could be explained by random chance. Then the prosecutor jumps on that and pushes it and stresses it to the jury. And so they are hearing from the state crime lab scientific expert and the prosecuting attorney's office, who are both sort of affirmatively saying, he did it, he did it, the evidence points to this, you have to convict him. And there there was no other evidence in the case. So I think... In Carrie's case, it it really comes down to weak and unreliable evidence and how easy it is to convict someone and send them away for life, or in his case, 20 years, based on that. And that's not how the legal system should operate. There should be more. It's supposed to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt. This DNA mixture was central to proving Carrie's innocence. Dr. Greg Hampikian would have to find a way to demonstrate just how mathematically unlikely it was that Carrie was involved. And these were hard problems. It's not, you know, it's not that it was, a, it was an easy problem they were messing up. It was that they didn't know when to say, we can't interpret something. In the next episode, we'll learn more about Rodney Zell and Dr. Hampikian's efforts to exonerate Carrie. I was hoping with all of, all of this that it would be enough to sway the judge. Their attempts to sway the public. It was just a, an incredible piece of journalism. I was hoping we would get, you know, ahead of steam with the courts or with the public, and it didn't happen. And we'll learn more about the factors that can cause an innocent person to spend a life behind bars. You begin to just disregard information to the contrary as almost irrelevant. Then you're missing key clues and can be involved in a wrongful conviction. And we see that again and again and again in these cases. This series isn't a deep dive into the ins and outs of the judicial system. What we want to do is advocate and educate about the thousands of people 
who don't belong behind bars. We'll use Carrie's story as a framework to learn about how his story is a reflection of a larger problem. The Sixth Amendment guarantees a speedy trial. But once you've been wrongfully convicted, the wheels of justice can seemingly grind to a halt. From Zapier, in partnership with the Georgia Innocence Project and Pineapple Street Studios, this is The 4%. As the leader in easy automation, Zapier empowers over 2 million businesses to automate workflows and move data across 5,000 apps. The 4% is produced by Stephen Key. Our associate producer is Lisa Cerde, and we had help from Natalie Brennan. Our production coordinator is Himia Freeman. Our editors are Leela Day, Joel Lovell, and Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. This show is mixed by Marina Paez. Music from Epidemic Sound. Legal services for Pineapple Street Studios by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson de Richet. Our executive producer is J.N. Berry. Our production partners at Zapier are Carly Moulton and the Zapier Studios team, including Gina King and Brittany Fleet. And from the Georgia Innocence Project, Bliss Savage, Mike Colesalter, Matt Holbrook, and Marty Ellen. Finally, a special thanks to Carrie Robinson for sharing his story with us. The next episode will be out in a week, so make sure to listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Elle Duncan, and thank you for listening.